Thanks for being here today. We are finishing a sermon series. We started a couple of weeks ago. The sermon series was on the subject of Ruth and uh, the story of Ruth, the girl from Moab. And Moab was a very uh, an interesting country that had a lot of tension with Israel, uh, a very, a very, really a wicked uh, place, and uh, had through that had some very bad interactions for the health and well-being of Israel. And uh, at some point, an Israel, Israelite family moved there, brought back from there uh, through marriage. Uh, well, they married there, and then the guys kind of all died, and this girl, uh, this widow young girl from Moab, ends up coming back to Israel with her widowed mother-in-law to take care of her in her old age. Ruth eventually married a man named Boaz. Boaz and Ruth, the two of them, began to, um, they both did something extraordinary to show love for others and service to others in their own actions. And it was a great story. Then last week, we kind of jumped into a conversation we called Descendants. And uh, that one is, um, it was a, kind of a story of, uh, a previous story in, in history of a woman who was from the land of Canaan named Rahab, who was a prostitute. And how she, when everyone around her began to hear and be aware of who God was, while the others feared and resisted, she feared and believed. And uh, in, in the end, she ended up helping the Israel people. She joined in, uh, them, and she ended up being uh, married into a family of Israel. And this former Canaanite prostitute uh, became, and a really cool story, she was the mother of Boaz as we see in the genealogy. She was Boaz's mother. So Boaz, when he extended his grace towards Ruth, he had a tremendous example, both of a mom who, as a foreigner, uh, had great faith in God and Rahab, but he also had an example in his father, Salmon, of how to love uh, people um, uh, who were outsiders, so to speak, because of, of his own parents. So it's a cool story. We call, we call it Descendants. And we're not going to be finished... Yet we're going to finish today with, a, with another story, that one, one we're going to read, and one that I'll just tell us briefly at the end. But um, I want us to kind of pick up the story back in Ruth, because we were looking at genealogy lists. Now, i, I got to tell you, uh, the Bible's full of lists of genealogies and descendants given for us. And um, I, I, did, I had two funerals that I conducted this week, of people who passed away. Um, and that was uh, both, in this case, um, both were... Um, were, were women, older women who passed away. And it was interesting to read the obituaries at the service and see all the generations and names that follow. And that's always important to us. But in this story, it's not just the genealogies for the posterity at a moment like that. It's the history of, of uh, the nation and kind of the descendants that brought some very important things through the history books for us. So we'll pick up the story in Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. This is the part where uh, Boaz was agreeing to purchase the property of Elimelech and also to marry Ruth, a Moabite girl, and uh, raise up a, a future for their family's uh, land and inheritance uh, through his actions. And when he did so in front of witnesses, the Bible says in, Roman, I'm sorry, in Ruth 4, verse 11, then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses, May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Now, uh, those names in the last verse there, Rachel and Leah. I want you to notice that because what's interesting is these are famous women in, in the history that they're referring to. They were actually two sister wives, I guess, of, uh, of a man named Jacob, who got into a baby-making contest with each other and with the two concubines they added to the mix to have a bunch of kids. And so, like, uh, Jacob had, like, 12 sons and a daughter, and they, uh, he, um, uh, they changed his name later to Israel, so Jacob is Israel. So you think of the nation of Israel, you think of Jacob. Although Jacob wasn't the founding, kind of the forefather, his grandpa Abraham was. So Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, who became known as Israel, is kind of the history. And they're referring to Rachel and Leah in this verse here. Kind of a, they're saying a blessing. They're saying a blessing over the family. Then they add another phrase. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So all these names are popping up. Last week we saw Rahab, the mother of Boaz. Today we're seeing this name Tamar. Who is Tamar? What's that story? We're going to see that story. If you want to follow in your Bible, it's in Genesis 38. 
And um, before we, we're not going to read the whole chapter, so I'll tell you where we'll jump in momentarily. But let me just give you a, a, for, a, a warning ahead of time. This is kind of a graphic story. This is the kind of story that makes you blush. It's not the kind of story you tell in church every week. In fact, there's a part of the story, I'm not even going to read it, I'm going to skip some verses and summarize. Then I'm going to read some other ones that you may wish I skipped and summarized. Um, this was, I, I'll tell you, these are the times I missed the old King James English because it was so vague you couldn't understand what it was saying. You know, like, like okay, I think I know what they meant there. It's pretty plain in the NLT. So uh, I'm reading that out loud. So you know, I was going to get laryngitis this week and make Anthony preach the sermon so I don't have to read these verses um, because they're just that plain. Now, I'm saying that because this is why, by the way, this is why we have a kids program at 1045. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, you know, get mad at me. And if our teens who are, I think some of them are overworking for a few minutes on a special song, as they come back in the room from the kids program momentarily, you know, before you write me a dirty email about my sermon today, A, check their Netflix and their TikTok and ask yourself if, they, if this is really that shocking. And B, it's in the Bible, so give me a break. Talk to God about it, okay? Uh, by the way, if you haven't read stories like this today, you ought to read your Bible because the Bible's a pretty interesting book sometimes. It gets kind of spicy at times. And today will be one of those stories, and I get to read it to you. But hey, here we go. So who's this Tamar person? Well, let's get into the story. Genesis, well, let me tell you before I do the backstory to the verses that we'll start with. A man named Judah, Judah was the fourth out of 12 sons born to a man named Jacob, who was known as Israel later. Ju Judah, uh, during the time they were living in this promised land that they would someday come back to, uh, Judah um, moved in with a group of people from Adullam and is, is you know, roaming as shepherds and as the carers of sheep. And Judah had a, um, married a wife there. And then they had three sons. Ur, and Onan, and uh, uh, Shelah. And uh, when Ur was old enough to get married, he found a young bride for him, a girl named Tamar. Apparently, in one of the situations where, you know, there's a picking the spouse thing going on. None of us want that for ourselves, but they had it in that culture. So Ur marries Tamar, and they're young. But the Bible tells us that Ur was a very wicked young man. Very wicked young man. So bad that it says that God killed him. Now, I don't know how he did it. And, but I just know that was, he, everyone, no one doubted he was a bad kid. And when he died, it was the kind of thing where all the people who believed in God said, oh yeah, God killed him. He was horrible. Maybe if they didn't believe in God, they might say, oh yeah, karma got that jerk. He deserved it. But he died. I mean, God killed her. He was gone. But now Tamar's a widow. And as we saw in the story of Ruth, you may have remembered that oftentimes in cultures, it was kind of an Israelite law. But even before it was Israelite law, it was common in some cultures, including Israel history, their, their earliest ancestors, that if a, a man died, his brother would marry the widow. Because again, and I, I've said this so much in this series, but women just did not have even the kind of rights they have today. There's, there's progress to be made in, 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 I think, a lot of things about how women are given an equal and fair treatment in even Western culture today, but, but we've come a long ways. Parts of the world today are far behind the eight ball in this area. And parts of the world back then, most of the world back then, it was horrible to be a woman uh, in the sense that you were almost property and you didn't have a lot of rights and you couldn't you know, be a witness in a stand. And, and it was just like the, it was just a, the way it was. And so for people who became widows, you hear the Bible talk a lot about, in those times about taking care of the widows and the orphans. Why? Because widows and orphans were in trouble. Because it was a man's world. And someone would have to take care of them tremendously. Now, what happens is, is, is Judah decides to do the right thing. When his wicked son Ur dies, he looks at his daughter-in-law Tamar and feels bad for her. And says to his other son Onan, you need to marry this girl. And of course, as the custom way would be through their nation's history, the first child that she'll have with you will be in your deceased brother's name. After that's going to be your family, but you've got to raise up a posterity for him and someone to, to look after his mom. So this was the plan. So Onan marries his brother's widow, Tamar. But, and I'm, this is the part I'm not reading because, yikes, but basically he wanted to enjoy the relationship of being married to her in all that that means sexually. But he did not want to give her children in his brother's name. So basically he, would, he took her as his wife. He enjoyed her, but he stopped short of allowing her to become pregnant. And if you want more details, read Genesis 38 on your own time. You're welcome. Um, but basically he did this. So she would, she, he took, obviously he didn't object to marrying her. He didn't object to in, you know, being intimate with her. He just enjoyed to 
fulfilling the responsibility all the way to see her have a baby with his brother's name. It was a horrible thing to do. And God killed him. Or he dies too now. So now, Judah has lost two of his sons, and he's got a daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's now a widow again. And what's he going to do? He has one son who's a little young to get married still, Sheila. How much of a hurry would you be to convince Sheila to marry the girl when the last two guys who married her have died? It reminds me, when I was first pastoring 20 years ago, some years ago, uh, I was a very young pastor in uh, my mid-20s, and um, I talked to a man in our, there's a man in our, who came to our church who his wife passed away when she was 59 years old. And uh, uh, 50, yeah, 59 years old. And um, a couple years later, he found love again, and he married a girl a little younger than him. He was in his early 60s. And she was like 57. A couple years later, she turned 59, and she died. And so a couple years later, he's like, man, I'm thinking about dating again. And in my youth, I'm just trying to be a wise voice of you know, logic. And so I said, well, my friend, make sure she's already past 59. You know, because apparently that's just, if she's 60, she made it, go ahead and do it. But don't, don't marry her any younger than that. Now, he laughed, we had a good relationship, and he's, you're right, I should make sure that she can make it, you know, 60, because apparently that's been a bad number for him. Now, that may be how Judah felt here. He's like, hmm, one son married her, he died. Another son married her, he died. I have one son left. Now, hopefully he wouldn't blame her, because his, he could blame himself, if anybody, if, right, if his kids were horrible. So what's he going to do? In Genesis 38, verse 11, it says this. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. Again, that's the way the cultures work. Weird, weird to us, but okay. I'll bring, you, I'll bring a son to take care of you next, but he's not old enough yet. So go home. Go home to mom and dad. I, let them, go, your parents are still alive. Uh, I'm not taking care of you. Go to your parents' house. And don't call us. We'll call you. Check your emails, especially your spam folder in case we send you a message and you missed it. We'll be in touch. All right? So, it says, but Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid that Sheila would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. Now, let's just pause here. This poor guy, he's lost two of his three sons and he's lost his wife now to death. Kind of reminds you of Naomi a few weeks ago. Remember Naomi lost her two sons and her husband and came back to, to Bethlehem that way? Judah's lost two of his sons and his wife. And so he's mourning. After the time of his mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Now, what's interesting about the story here is these are shepherds. So kind of like when Boaz would harvest the fields at the end of the planting season, these shepherds would take their sheep periodically to have them sheared and make money off of the wool and so on and so forth. So they're going to do their business, uh, their, their uh, business of uh, taking care of the sheep. Verse 13, someone told Tamar, hey, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and to marry him. In other words, her, her worst insecurities about, <laughs> I'm not going to get another husband. I'm the widow maker, you know. And sure enough, Judah was not calling her, and her email folder was empty. You know, there was no arrangement made, and Sheila was old enough, and she was just going to be forgotten. So what is she going to do? So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Now, she's going to do something that basically acted in the role of a prostitute momentarily. They wore a veil. Now, why the veil? This is not just a veil, like a really thin veil. You can still see who it is. This is a veil like would kind of disguise who was under the veil, pretty much. Why would someone do this? Why would someone in culture wear a, a covering over their face? Like, isn't that the point? But obviously, these are people who were coming to these opportunities um, who don't want to be identified necessarily. First of all, someone just wants them for their body, so cover my face with a veil. Second of all, let's be honest here, it might not go well for the girls in this kind of situations if their identity was known. 
Because this is a culture where men can go get their needs met, apparently, and without reprisal. But if a girl did something like this, and at some point the winds turned against her, you can oust her to be stoned to death, right? Read the New Testament story when Jesus had to basically uh, deal with a woman caught in the act of adultery. They wanted to stone her. Ever wonder where all the guys were in that story that she was in adultery with, you know? I mean, this is the kind of deal where women just got the raw end of the deal, right? We see that in parts of the world today where there's barbaric practices towards women, where men are immoral, but if the women are immoral, they would disfigure their faces or something. So for her, it's it's safety. Cover my face, you know? You don't even know who I am. You just want my body. So she puts a veil on her face. Then she sat beside the road of the entrance to the village of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, where he was heading. Let's continue the story there. Verse 15, Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. Eeks. How much will you pay me to have sex? Well, how much will you pay to have sex with me? Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. That just makes me laugh whenever I read it. Like, this is apparently the going pay rate for such practices. Oh, yeah, I'll send you a goat from the flock when we get home here. This is a farmersonly.com uh, matching site here. Uh, we got, got just, far, uh, will a goat do later on? Oh, absolutely, sure, sure. Uh, that's how this works. Um, but what will you give me to guarantee? Th- then she's asking a question. What will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat? She asked. Well, what kind of a guarantee do you want? He replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal. So apparently he has some kind of a seal to identify who he was, an identification seal and a cord that goes with it. Leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. Basically, leave me your identifying marks. Leave me your driver's license, right, or something, right? So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. This is weird. And she basically what she was saying was, I don't want to not get paid because you say, oh, yeah, I'll pay you someday. She's like, I got to have something in the meantime before you bring the, send the goat here. Uh, I'm, look, this is a story in the Bible, okay? This is, um, this is just the Bible story I'm telling you here from Genesis. This is 50 shades of hay is what this is. So anyhow, um, he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. She became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Can I just pause here and just, look, we don't read this story in church like almost never. So can I just like, talk about this. What a ridiculous culture. She's got to go back home, take off this veil and put on her widow's clothing. She has widow's clothing? Like a special apparel line for widows? Oh, you're wearing the widow's clothing. Do the guys have to wear widow's clothing if their wife dies? Is there like a Is Judah wearing the men's widow, widower clothing or something like that? Why does she have to wear widow's clothing? It's just such a weird and demeaning part of the world. To think about now, it seems this way. Like, that's, this is who your identity is. This is who your value is. But she goes back home and she apparently puts on the widow's clothing again after she takes off the veil from her act with Judah. Later, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite take, uh, send, his, send his friend, ask his friend to take the young goat to the woman to pick up the things that he had given her as his guarantee, but Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, Hey, guys, hey, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to Anaim? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told them, told uh, him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claimed they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Well, then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back again to look for her. In other words, what he's saying is, look, I think the goat would be a better payment for her, more value to her than my stuff that she held on to. But we can't find her, and so I guess I'll just lose that, and she'll lose her better payment. But I don't know what to do because, let's be honest, it's kind of embarrassing to be fishing around. Like, I mean, this is the kind of thing where you're sneaking into the store to buy the inappropriate thing and hoping no one watches you. He knew. There's no doubt, as we'll see momentarily, that he did wrong. Right? He was doing wrong here. 
This is not something, this is an embarrassing, reproachful thing that you, you don't want to be caught. And so when Judah, that's why Judah sent his friend. He sent his friend back to find the girl because he didn't want to be asking around, right? He's trying to hide the act. And when he can't find her, Judah's like, look, I, I hate to lose my identification steel and cord. We'll get another one, but I don't want to keep asking because it's kind of embarrassing to keep asking questions. Oh, hey guys, um, has anyone seen a prostitute around here asking for a friend? I mean, what do you do? So he says, you know what, we're just going to let it go and move on. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. And now because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. What? Okay, can we just pause here? Bring her out and let her be. That's the action. Like, all of a sudden, Judah's all about burning the prostitutes, you know? I mean, unless you need one, in which case burn them, you know? But uh, so here's like, oh, that's who this was. That's who's misbehaving in our family. Like, again, what, what, is this, what is this culture? Bring her out and let's burn the girl. Because she had the audacity to do such a thing that I have once availed myself of, but no one needs to know that. Isn't that interesting? They're going to bring her out and kill her. Verse 25, but as they were going, as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. Uh, the man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Oh, man, the big reveal. I'd love to see, I'd love to have a, like a video of that moment or that, that man's face. Oh, yeah, she sent these to you, said, check this out. This is, this is the father of the child. I make a picture that the color drains from Judas's face all, all of a sudden, you know. Oh. Oh. I see. So what does he say? Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Sheila. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. Wait a minute. Now she's more righteous? What changed? So I want to know, what changed in the story? Like, in all, she went from being burned the witch to she's more righteous than I am. What changed? Was she, did, she, did her actions change? I mean, was she not a prostitute? No. What's the, you know the difference is here? Judah is the difference here. Right? Oh, well, in that case, yeah, um, I can explain everything. You see, I mean, people have need. If I have, if I, if I, people have needs if I need something. It's amazing that the turn that takes place in Judah's reception once he's implicated in what happened. And I know he's saying she's righteous because she was raising up a child for her brother. That's the righteous thing to do. But notice that she didn't try to do this in a normal setting with him either because it was, it was still the same crazy thing. The difference is, is when, he was, when it was his signature his identification steal. All of a sudden he's like, no, no one needs to die. No one needs to die today. <laughs> Let's not get carried away. She's righteous. And I'm not, I want to move on, but I don't want to move on because I don't get to tell this story very often because, again, this is a weird story. But let me just kind of vent here at, at, at all of us, at my, ourselves as, as Christians, and, and just say, boy, aren't we guilty sometimes of being so angry at the sins of others? And so understanding about the sins of ourselves. Like, you know, if so, my sin, hey, nobody's perfect. Or as I grew up saying, nobody's nerfed. Because, I mean, we all make mistakes. But somebody else, oh my goodness, can you believe what they do? See, that's what we do with other people who sin differently than we do. Right? The people who sin differently than we do. We're talking about sexual sins here. Boy, the church is full of people who look at the sexual sins of others that they don't relate to and say, ah, God, the people are horrible and disgusting. Ah, I'm angry and stomp my foot and it's political. Everything's mad. But as soon as you look at the, some of the, of the things that happen amongst the same people, well, those are understandable because that's how I struggle. That's, how, that's what I've done. That's what I look at when my wife's not watching, my husband's not watching. That's what I've done behind someone's back. It's amazing how good we are at classifying sin depending on how much it affects us. Because if it affects me, or if your sin can relate to mine, then we're okay. But if I can disassociate myself from somebody else, burn them, burn them, 
hey, me? Well, you know, it's hard being human. You've had a, I've had a rough go of this thing. God understands. I'm going to come back to that in a moment here because there's more to say. Tamar gave birth to a son whose name was Perez. Kind of a messed up story, by the way. I've got another one to tell you. You should read your Bible sometime. Before I, I quickly, without reading it, tell you another story in a moment here. You should read your Bible sometime. It's pretty spicy. I mean, that was in there. You're welcome. And that's, I skipped some verses, okay? Um, I mean, and again, I'm not trying to justify any kind of inappropriate TV, so don't mishear what I'm saying. But before, you know, you all get all mad about how Game of Thrones and shows are so horrible and barbaric and sexual, read the Bible. Like we saw last week, our whole uh, Israel that takes over cities and they kill every single person in the village, wipe out entire cities of people. You have stories like this and the one we saw last week with Rahab and one we're going to see in a minute here. I mean, it's kind of savage if you read the Bible and, 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 and take off our whole filters, you know, our goggles, our, we romanticize things from a distance. That's why all the children's uh, nurseries have pictures of Noah and the ark painted on the walls. It always makes me laugh a little bit like, here's the Bible story, kids. See, these are people drowning in the water right here. This is great, you know. And so, but um, it's really, if you, if you take the romantic edge off of the book, it's kind of like shocking sometimes, Okay. And so, messed up story. But it's a story that was referred to in a positive way, outcome-wise, in the life of Ruth and Boaz later on as one of their descendants. Now, we couldn't finish this series in this, uh, these few weeks. We couldn't wrap it up today without going to one more place in the Bible. And that is the genealogies of Jesus. If you were with us last week, we went to Matthew. Matthew and Luke record the genealogies that brought down to Jesus' birth. And... Very interesting. By the way, Matthew's an interesting person to write the genealogies because of his own past. We'll mention him later. But in Matthew 1, verse 1, here's a, here's a record of the ancestry of Jesus. Verse 1 of Matthew 1. Ready? This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now I'm going to pause right here before I go any further. In the genealogical records, they always listed the men. So-and-so, he was the father of so-and-so, and he was the father of so-and-so. I always think that's a pretty rotten deal. Like, where are the women's names in these genealogies, right? When you get ancient genealogical records, it's always the men. Why? The mom's the one who had to carry the kid in her belly for nine months and go through the pain of labor. What did the dad do? Sound like a big dope, you know? But he gets his name mentioned in the genealogy all the time, and the women don't even get mentioned. Just how it was. But very interestingly, in the genealogies of Jesus, God's inspired, in his word, he inspires us to have the names of some women. And, and I just want to say this because, and this is not my point in my sermon, but it's a chance to say this. People ever want to look at Christianity and say, oh, it's backwards and unprogressive about things about, you know, you know social issues or whatever. You ought to understand that in the cult, Jesus was amazing, Christianity was amazing at how open they, they were to, to China fight against the typical gender stereotypes and roles of the day. I mean, women get mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. That was unheard of. Women got to be witnesses of the resurrection first. That was unheard of for any kind of testimony. Look at the early church and some names that are brought up along the way. It's amazing how, how Christianity from early on in a world that was very contrary and different, it elevated the place of women in ways that people around that time did not have. And I think that's important to remember that today. But there's going to mention some women in Jesus' genealogy. Let's read it together. By the way, which women do you mention? All right, there's some good ones in there, right? We know where it all ends. It all ends with the Virgin Mary. You've got to hold your hands when you say that. The Virgin Mary. Because this is where, this is the big point. Let's read the list along the way. And here's why I want to say this. Because it's a pretty messed up list. Let's just get to the first name, and I'll say more in a moment here. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. What? So let me just go, let me just go with the story for a minute here. You're going to mention some women, which is unheard of. You're going to mention women, which is rare in the genealogy list, because, I mean, what do they actually do? So we'll just mention the guys. You're going to mention some women in Jesus' genealogy, and you're going to go with Tamar? Do you all just read the same story I read, right? Like, is that really the story you want to go with? Genesis 38. 
That's the name you're going to mention. Did you just read the previous verses? You know what names they didn't mention? They mentioned Abraham, never mentioned his wife Sarah. Why not mention Sarah? She was pretty cool. Woman of great faith in her old age. It says Abraham was the father of Isaac, never mentioned Sarah. It says Isaac was the father of of, of, of Jacob. Never mentions Rebecca. Rebecca was a wonderful wife, as far as we could tell. They don't mention Rebecca or Sarah. Why? They go right to Tamar. Like, did you read the story? I mean, again, there's better choices. I mean, again, think about the Virgin Mary in the story, right? By the way, just to ruffle more feathers, I guess. You know, I always grew up and, you know, made a big deal about what the Virgin Mary is a preaching point in church to the young people. Do you know what the significance spiritually about Mary being a virgin? Why that was significant? It was because it's impossible to have a baby if you're a virgin. That's why it was significant. Like, when your daughter came home and said, um, I haven't been pregnant, you're like, what have you been doing? Nothing. You're like, yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't work that way. The fact that Mary was a virgin, the point of the story was that Mary, did, God came into the world supernaturally. The promised Messiah was here. He gave a sign. He gave a sign, a supernatural sign that can't happen. A virgin conceived and bore a son. What? That was the miracle that signified that something big was being done by God that was out of our realm of natural in order to bring the Savior into the world who would do something else outside of the realm of natural when he would die and rise again from the dead for our sins. Now, I grew up in culture where, in a church culture where you didn't get that mentioned very often because they were busy telling us that Mary was a virgin, so therefore if you want God to use you or be any kind of value, you better behave yourself, you little pervs. Right? And we missed the point of the story. It was a miracle. That's the point of the story. That a virgin could conceive. And if you don't miss, don't miss the point because the rest of Jesus' genealogy isn't so miraculous. He doesn't even mention Sarah or Rebecca, he goes to Tamar. We just read that story. Let's keep reading here. Perez, Judah was the father of Perez. Okay, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Woman number two mentioned, remember her? Yes, Canaanite woman, prostitute, that's her. She, she I mean, she came to faith. It was her past. But I'm again, again, I'm just saying, you know, kind of a, family scandal, scarlet letter story going on here, right? Boaz was the father. Um, they gave birth to Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Again, um, Moabite girl, that was kind of a big uh, bad thing in Israel. Moab almost used it typology to picture sin. Ruth is mentioned here. Why Ruth? Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose name was Bathsheba, woman number four is Bathsheba mentioned here, the widow of Uriah. Now we're going to turn here for sake of time. But let me just tell you, this story is, is no less amazing than the rest at being, wow. So David, and, and it was the king of Israel finally, and, and he had a man in his, one of his mighty men, whose name was Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite who traveled with David before David was king when David was on the lamb. And when David became king, Uriah and others like him became David's elite soldiers. And when they would go to war, he'd have his special soldiers under a special general doing the kind of the Green Beret stuff, you know, the, the, the really good soldier stuff. Uriah is one of those guys. And typically when battles took place, the king would go to battle as well because it was a big deal for the king to be there. It was his conquest. But David didn't go this time. He stayed home. That's a big deal, because even at the end of the story, if you read ahead, eventually before the city is finally officially conquered, David is rushed out there so he could be there when they officially conquer the city, because as the king, you got to be there to stick it as your claim. So that's why they usually went to battle, but David didn't go to battle. He sent his special troops and his, all his army instead of him, and he stayed home. What did he do? Well, one day he's on the roof of the house. He looks across the way, and at, at Uriah's house, his wife Bathsheba's out there, and she's undressed where he can see her. And she's bathing, and he's checking her out, and he stays a little too long on that webpage. And he's watching Bathsheba, and finally he's like, I want that. So he sends his guys to go bring her over, and I don't know Bathsheba's attitude in this. I don't know if she came and said, all right, a king. This is, this is a, uh, absolutely. Or if she was like, what am I supposed to do? He could get me killed. I don't know what she thought. It doesn't say her thoughts. 
doesn't say anything. It just says that she was brought to the king. But we know that the king sent for her after lusting over her from upstairs for a while. And did what lust often does, men, be careful. He lusted long enough to where he took action. And so now he sends for her and calls her in and they have sexual relationships. And she becomes pregnant. And she sends word over to him saying, hey, got a problem here, David. I'm pregnant and my husband's been at war a while. He's going to know it's not him. What are we going to do? And David's got a panic. So he quickly sends his men to hurry to the battle lines and say, bring Uriah, specifically Uriah, back to give me a report of the battle. Uriah comes back and he's like, uh, it's me. Why would you pull me off the battle? I'm one of your special forces. David says, well, I needed to know how it was going. Okay, I could, uh, I could do that. Um, it's going well. You know, it's, going, it's going rough, but we're getting there. It's war. Okay, thanks, Uriah. Hey, listen, since you're here, thanks for the message. Go back and go visit your wife tonight. Spend the night with her before you go back to the lines. You, you earned a break. Uriah leaves, goes outside of the, of the, of the, of the royal house, and sleeps on the ground that night with the, with the servants. Doesn't go home to his wife. David finds out the next morning and he calls him and says, why didn't you go home and visit your wife? And Uriah says, why? How can I do that when the men and the armies are out there fighting in battle and risking their lives? Why would I come home and sleep with my wife? Which would have to be a real slap to David who was at home sleeping with Uriah's wife. And so David's like, I got to do something extra here. So he says, maybe if I get him drunk, really drunk. So he gets him drunk. And that night he says, go home to your wife. But Uriah staggers outside and sleeps with the guards again, with the servants again on the ground. And David spends the night figuring out, I'm having a hard time covering my sin. What should I do? The answer, confess. But what he decides to do is cover my sin with more sin. So he writes a letter that night. And the letter says to Joab, the general, I want you to take Uriah and bring him to the hottest part of the most dangerous action. Get him up close where it's dangerous and people could die. And then I want you to intentionally back off with all the men on, on cue, have everyone in on it, and back away and let him be vulnerable and get killed. Make sure he gets killed in battle. I want him dead. Puts it in an envelope, seals it shut, gives it to Uriah, says, Uriah, take this back to the front lines and give it to the general. And Uriah carries his own death wish back home, not having any idea what's going on. Goes to war, Joab opens the letter, says, hmm, hmm. Hmm. Okay. They go out to battle. They get themselves in a tough spot on purpose. And at some point in the middle of the battle, where well, they're all fighting together as brothers in arms, all of a sudden Joe gets a cue and all the guys drop back and Uriah realizes he's been abandoned. What? And he's killed. And word comes back to David who says, oh, well, people die in war. That's the way life works. And Bathsheba grieves her husband for a month and David calls her over and marries her. They have a baby. The baby dies. Later on, they have another baby named Solomon. That's the story. I know it's sober, isn't it? That's the story we get in the genealogies. Again, could they not have found a few different names? If you're going to name a few women, and not because the women are bad, but because the women were part of situations with really bad men. Why bring up women's names who were, they themselves or the men with them or both were very scandalous? Is this the story you want to go with in your genealogy when you're breaking the trend and naming the girls? Again, Mary, I understand. Why not more Sarah's and Rebecca's? Why these girls? Mm. It's amazing and marvelous that Jesus would be born into this line, isn't it? Jesus. Think about it this way. When it comes to Jesus coming into the world and his genealogies and where he came from, he didn't have to choose them. Not them. You say, oh, don't be silly, Arlen. Of course he had to choose them. I mean, what, was he found another family without sin in the background? Everybody he would have been born into would have had a family tree like that somewhere. This is a, this is a guy who just was virgin born. I think he could have done pretty cool stuff. I mean, seriously, if he could be born of a virgin, you could probably make sure your family tree's a little cleaner. I'm just saying. He didn't have to choose them, but even if you would argue that he had no choice because there was no better examples out there, he sure could have chosen to hide them. If you're going to go give your genealogy list, you don't decide to go off script and mention specifically the scandals. You kind of just say, it's kind of like, you know, weird Uncle Joe. You just kind of, just kind of go past and don't mention him, and he's, he's there, but he's not, you know. He could have chosen to hide them. He didn't have to choose them. He could have chosen to hide them, but he chose to highlight them. He chose to highlight them. 
He actually says, instead of ignoring that they were in my past, I want to put their names on the front page of Scripture so whenever you read my story and you start in Matthew, you're going to read about Tamar and Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabite and Bathsheba, who with David did that whole thing. He, could have, he didn't have to choose them. He could have chosen to hide them. But he chose to highlight them. And it's interesting. It's interesting that he would do that. What do these women have in common? Well, I mean, for, uh, I think all foreign girls in, in one sense, Hittite wife, uh, Moabite girl, Canaanite Rahab, and the Dulamite um, Tamar from Israel. But uh, the, several more were, they weren't, they weren't the Virgin Mary. They'd all been with men before. I mean, three were widows. One was a widow twice, and the other one was a prostitute. I don't know. What they have in common is their messy past and the past, their stories that are messy around them, the men around them, are mentioned and highlighted in Jesus' story. He didn't have to choose them. He could have chosen to hide them, but he chose to highlight them. Why? So that we could know he's the only one who has to be perfect. Don't miss what I'm saying. I am not saying do whatever you want to. There's no consequences. You and I both know that when we make stupid and bad choices in life, there are consequences. If you don't believe me, that story about David and Bathsheba just now, you should read the rest of that story. There was consequences to sin. David and Bathsheba had extreme consequences. You and I both know from our own life's experience when we make dumb, wrong, and sinful choices, life brings us consequences. We get that. I'm not talking about how life works. I'm talking about how God loves you. Here's what I want you to understand. That when you come to church on Sunday and you sit here away from life, and away from, away from life's moments, and away from life's actions, and away from life's consequences, when you come to church and you wonder, spiritually, do I have value before God? Does God love me? Does God even like me? Does, is God disgusted with me? I want you to understand that the message of Scripture was clear in the gospel, that God sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. He knew what he was walking into. He knew what he was redeeming. He was redeeming a bunch of hot messes. And he chose to these girls, he mentions them in his genealogy, instead of hiding them, he highlights them so we could know he's the one for our salvation to be possible. One had to be perfect. And God who on the cross took our sins upon him, he who knew no sin, Corinthians says, became sin for us so we could become the righteousness of God in him. That he became our sin and paid the consequences for us to impart or to impute to us his righteousness. That's the amazing gospel. And that ought to encourage you today, whoever you are. Must have meant a lot to Matthew to write these words. Matthew was the tax collector. Matthew was considered the refuge of his culture. The religious people of Matthew's day considered Matthew to be the lowest of the low. And Matthew is writing this out wondering, I wonder if it's truly true that our past doesn't matter to God who loves us. This means that your life is valued and you are loved and your life has purpose despite anything you've done. And by the way, if you're doing stuff today that you shouldn't do, I'm going to tell you right now, you know God, God who loves you. Is, the Bible is full of the warnings that, that sin, you reap a, you reap a harvest, you're gonna, you're, you know it's not worth it. You probably already know our sin finds us out and things happen and there's consequences. And God who loves you doesn't want that for you or for the people you're affecting. But turn to him today because whether it's your present that can become your past in a moment or your past from your past, it's behind you. And Jesus said, I came to be the perfect sacrifice for your mess. Your life is valuable. Your life is usable. Your life is purposeful. Even though you've done whatever you carry with you. And by the way, so is theirs. Who is there? Who is they? They are all the people that you can't give grace to because their sin is too disturbing to you or their past is too bothersome to you. Their life has purpose. Their life has value as much as ours. I'm going to be honest, I'm gonna, and I'm going to take the time to do this right now because it's, just, it's, it's, it's in me. We don't get to tell this story very often. I have been in church work a long time. 22 and a half years of being a, a lead pastor. 
Can I just be honest? I am weary to the bones over the last many years of watching religious people, Christian people, who talk about grace, sing about grace, worship about grace, are all about grace, but have none to offer other people who need it other than themselves. It's disturbing. Champions of grace who sing about it until, until, and maybe someone else can get grace if I wasn't affected by their sin. If I want to just hear they had a, a bad story and believe in grace for them because it means grace for me. But let me see someone fault or let them wrong me or let me see them offend my sensibilities and I just don't have any. I've watched people in the Christian realm who, who sing about grace in one side of their mouth and the other side of their mouth condemn and have none for other people. And it's toxic and it's ugly and it's not the message of Jesus and it's killing our witness in our culture for a long time. we got to change. I have been long, long enough to see Christian leaders, pastors, worship leaders, small group leaders, Christians on Facebook just proclaiming their great faith to the whole world. God's amazing grace. Get on rants, sometimes politically driven rants, other kinds of rants just against certain segments of society and people whose sexual sins are disgusting and abhorrent. And they just make them very loud about how they feel about things. Turn around and end up having affairs of their own come out of the closet. Sometimes sins against minors. And you're like, oh, that was pretty pious of you for a while there. And I don't understand that. Like, can we not see the message of the gospel better than the, the message we're, we're, we're preaching? That's not the gospel. That's, not the, that's a false gospel. We better believe the gospel's for everybody. Not just for people who are like us or sin like us. But the ones who are different. God loves them. His arms are open for them too. His grace extends to them too. You see, let me just be very plain. Awareness of God's grace ought to produce two important qualities in each of us. And if they don't, then I'm going to call that we don't see God's grace plainly. Awareness of God's grace ought to bring two qualities in all of us if we've experienced it. The first quality is gratitude. If we've really experienced God's grace, there ought to be gratitude, worship, praise. God, you love me so much. You've done so much for me. You've redeemed me. I know what you've done for me. I couldn't save myself. I know... Grace, grace, God's amazing grace. Boy, sing about it, praise about it, think about it, pray about it, post about it. We gotta be full of gratitude. But God's amazing grace and awareness of his grace ought to bring another quality out besides gratitude. It ought to bring out humility. It ought to bring out a humility in us. Gratitude towards God and humility towards each other. There ought not be a drop of arrogance or ignorance in the life of Christian people anywhere towards people around them who are sinful. There ought to be humility. And if we miss that, we've missed the whole thing. We missed the good news of the gospel. On one side, we've embraced it. Good news for me. But we've missed it. I can't tell you. Can't tell you how sad it always is to me to watch, and I can, I can name the names, I wouldn't, of course, of people I've seen and dealt with who have had remarkably horrific things in their past. They've had their own bad stuff. And if I was in their life long enough, I walked through their past with them. I've walked through their stuff. I, I was there, I've, I've been a pastor long enough to pour grace with people through very bad moments of their life when they needed it and help them get back on their feet and believe that God does love them and they can keep going and not to quit because they're not useless and worthless because of their past. I have walked with people through some tough stuff who turn around. I have seen it in my, I've seen it in my ministry and it blows my mind. Who've turned around and seen somebody else struggling and said, I can't believe, how could people, and we, you need to call them out and this needs to happen. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what? You have no grace for somebody else who has done things not even as bad as you've done or maybe different than you've done? You, you, we just kind of stop turning around and talking about everyone needs to believe in God's grace for me. God's grace. I want to sing about it. I need to believe it. Don't tell me it's not true. Scold the world about robbing me of my forgiveness and my grace and believing this message, embracing this message for me. And then walking around and gossiping and criticizing and condemning other people. What in the world is wrong with our message? That's not the message we need to be having. We should have gratitude and we should have humility. 
If we are aware of God's grace, then I would challenge that if we don't have gratitude and humility, that our awareness of God's grace is lacking in our lives. We have missed it. And here's the problem. Here's why. The minute you stop believing that God's grace can extend far enough to them, you're going to have to wonder if it's really big enough to extend all the way to you. And the minute you doubt that God's love is deep enough for them and their situation, you're going to always have to wonder, can God really love you completely in yours? I think that one of the reasons we don't extend grace and, and have humility and love people the way, and have good news to our messaging, I think one of the reasons we struggle to do that elsewhere is because we really haven't truly done it for ourselves. We've truly not experienced the grace of God. I think it would bring us to tears of gratitude and joy and humility and praise and love like he has loved us. Let me say it this way as I close. God can use the most unlikely people and circumstances to bring Christ into the world. It's called Tamar, Rahab, David, Judah, Ruth, Boaz, Bathsheba. And that's true for today. If you're struggling with your sense of identity, if you struggle with your own sense of value, good news for you. God loves you. He sent his son for you. He redeems you. You have value. You have purpose. God can use you. God can use, me. God can use the most unlikely people. That's us. God can use the most unlikely people and circumstances to bring Christ into this world, to this community, to this town, to this area. God can use the most unlikely people. My hands up. And circumstances. And stories and pasts to bring Christ into the world. And that is also true for those other people who you have a trouble believing that grace can extend to them, that God can use them, God can use the most unlikely people around you and those unlikely circumstances around you to bring Christ into the world. The story is that Christ has come into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And if we can rejoice in that with gratitude and humility, maybe, just maybe, we can turn the ship around in the Americanized church and get back to a pure gospel message of good news to save a world that needs a Savior. One that hopefully we've experienced by His grace.